Figure Developer Podcast, the podcast where we talk about new and exciting technologies, professional development, clean code, career advancement, and more. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. With us today is Alan Holub. Alan is an internationally recognized software architect and consultant slash trainer focusing on organizational agility. He helps people build software better and build better software. Welcome, Alan. Hello, hello. So uh, before we jump into the meat of things, would you give our listeners maybe a little more introduction to yourself? Uh, Perhaps tell them how you got started in the industry. Um, I actually got started as a hardware engineer. Um, I was doing robotics work. In fact, before I was doing robotics work, I, I, with my own hands, uh, hand constructed the, the um, error correction uh, board that's inside the Hubble Space Telescope. So I actually have something that I built orbiting in space, which is kind of cool. But the, <laughs> so that was my very first job. And I, from that into robotics and back at the time um, we were using a chip from Motorola that was um, it was a great chip, but Motorola, unlike other companies at the time, like Intel offered zero developer support at all. So um, I ended up being assigned the task of building both a compiler and an operating system for running this robot and by the time I finished doing that, I was a software guy. So the <laughs> that's that's how it started. I subsequently built many other compilers and things like that. But the but it all started from there. So how does that kind of bring you into? And what 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 are you working on? What do you do these days? What do I do these days? Is I I help companies be more agile in the lowercase a sense of the word. Um, agile in the uppercase a sense of the word has turned into this. Uh, execrable abomination. It's just, it's horrible what it, what the word has come to mean now. Um, but everybody needs agility. So what I do is help people with their agility. So I'd, I'd like to distinguish that from what other consultants in this space do, because I'm not pushing some framework. I don't have some pat answer to all your problems. I did, I was talking to a, a potential client the other day and he said, so, so are you going to bring in like this army of people to help <laughs> do this. And I had to explain, well, no, I'm, I'm me. Um, the first thing I do is I pick some of your people and create an army of your people to do this because it's not going to help me. It's not going to help you rather if I do the work for you, because you've got to do the work yourself. So I, I kind of help companies move in an agile direction by, by, you know, building the internal knowledge and stuff that they need to actually pull that off. But I, I think of myself as a consultant, not a coach. I, 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 I do work with teams um, if I need to. But, you know, coaching has got all this weirdness associated with it that I would as soon avoid as not, is that it's it's all mixed up with sort of life coaching now, which, you know, agile, as far as I'm concerned, agile coaches don't do that. Agile coaches make the organization better, not not help people realize their full potential. And I, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm on the organizational side of that. Yeah, so that... Um- I was curious, uh, what size of organizations do you tend to work with and who, with whom from the organization do you tend to work with? Um, all sizes uh, from small startups. I've been a CTO a couple of times, in fact, for my own startup. So they've been, you know, very early stage. So they were small, you know, a handful of people. The, the, um, 
the organizations on the other hand that I've worked with, you know, they're as large as like fortune 50 companies and they're as small as a startup with a dozen people in them. It just depends. Um, the, I'm kind of expensive so it's gonna be a startup that's set up to do that. But the, the, um, the, um, I, the thing is, is that if you're a small organization, the odds of you succeeding at developing some real agility are much higher than if you're an existing large corporation. And often the really big corporations don't want to talk to somebody like me. Instead, it's, it's kind of an odd thing. If you, all of the best agile consultants on the planet, as far as I know, are independents, just individual people. And including some of the people that signed the Agile Manifesto, they're still working as independents, but they don't have certificates. And they don't have, you know, giant hire Kent Beck. Kent Beck does not have a certificate. And the, <laughs> well, with, with, and without the, the certificates, though, then how do we know that? How do we they, know, right? <laughs> so, and, you know, they want to hire the Deloitte's and the McKinsey's and these people that will come in and do da active damage to you. But they don't understand that. So um, it's very hard to get into big organizations unless you happen to know somebody or somebody really good in the organization happens to know you and that's ha that has happened right there are there are the when the organizations have up at the top people who understand what agile really is they tend to uh, kind of be hooked into the community they understand who the important people are they go to conferences they listen to people at conferences they follow me on twitter um but they they kind of understand who the actual real players are and they go out of their way to hire those people but sort of your average giant corporation they have they have they don't know anybody from anybody you know they don't know who any of the, the, the agile real agile people are so they fall back on the mckinsey's of the world and suffer as a consequence but there we are so you know sometimes i get called in to clean up the mess that those people leave behind but um normally what happens though is that they make a huge mess and then the company says oh well, this agile thing it was it was awful it was garbage we're not going to do that anymore and they go back to doing whatever they were doing before um <laughs> whatever good that that did them yeah and, and those of us that have a, a few more gray hairs than than somebody uh you know just just getting started in the industry we we have the the gift of knowledge of how it used to be in, yeah. in good old days in a, a waterfall design type of application development life cycle. Um, we, we got to see and got to witness the uh, introduction of agile frameworks and agile estimation, agile development and agile processes. Yeah. And we, we got to see companies starting to adopt some of these two varying degrees of, of success and varying degrees of, of failure and then cursing the name agile because the name agile, it failed, yeah. it failed yeah. for them. Well, what they're doing, what they're adopting usually isn't agile though, in any real sense of the word, you know, and most of, I don't know about, uh, about how great your hairs are, but the, <laughs> when I started doing it, it wasn't called agile, right? We were just working in a way that made sense to us. And I, you know, and I talked to, to the people I know who are the agile manifesto, signers you know people like bob martin and it, it was the case with pretty much everybody right in, in other words we were just working in this interesting way that was working and everybody was doing slightly different things but there was kind of a commonality there and the the but nobody had a name for it is that when the manifesto finally came came up you know is that all of us that were doing it looked at the manifesto looked at what they did at snowbird and said yeah we we get that right it's what it's what we do but um it wasn't called anything then you didn't adopt it it was just the way that people chose to work and 
not everybody worked that way. Back at the time, you had the sort of, I don't know how to put it, is that the, the software industry at the time was really in two camps. There was the IBMs of the world with their blue suits and their their ties and their briefcases and, you know, corporate agile, or not agile, corporate software development, IT. And then there were relatively new companies, mostly working with PCs, which were considered radical at the time. Um, you know, companies like Microsoft and stuff were small. And uh, the um, we were doing things in a completely different way, mostly because none of us had ever worked in those big corporations. So we didn't have bad habits. And, <laughs> you know, and that kind of turned into Agile. That turned into what Agile is. It was Agile was sort of a formalization of that way of thinking that um, that didn't exist before then. But it was all based on pragmatics. It was all, well, you can do it that way, but we're doing it this way. And it sure looks like it works better. <laughs> so why don't you try doing it this way instead? And the, the, there we are. As I, I, you know, I have to say, though, that one of the things that's wrong with Agile as it stands now, capital A Agile, is um, um, what makes Agile work is that the people who are doing the work decide on how to work. That made sense. And I, I, everybody that I know that was starting early was working in a slightly different way. There were some commonalities, of course, but everybody was working in a slightly different way. And there's a, there's a story of um, the Numi plant in, in uh, Fremont down the road for me that made cars. And GM was doing this as a joint venture with uh, Toyota. And it was, it was the worst automobile manufacturing plant in the country, maybe in the world, when they started out. Uh, highest absentee rates, lowest quality rates, every, everything bad was bad. And uh, they made this joint venture with Toyota and in, in shot the Toyota lean people. And literally within months, they had the place turned around and it turned into one of the most effective, one of the best automobile plants in the world. And um, <laughs> so GM in its infinite wisdom said, well, let's see what document what these, these, these people are doing. And they went into the plant and they made these big stacks of documentation of everything that everybody was doing in Fremont. And they took this paper, trundled back to over to Detroit and plonked it down on the desks of the people of Detroit and says, you do this. And it was a complete, utter, dismal failure, just a disaster. And the point is that the what made it work was that in Fremont, people were, the people doing the work were allowed, not allowed, not just allowed, but required to, to develop ways to do the work. So the people doing the work were in control of how the work was done. And they built things that worked for them and they worked really well for them. And when you try and take that and move it somewhere else, it's not going to work because those aren't the people that are, that are doing it, right? They have other concerns, they have other communication paths and stuff. So what got me started on all this is that you look at things like Scrum and Scrum is what Ken and Jeff were doing back in the day, right? Is when they were still working in software development companies, they developed this inside their organization, inside their team, to do work inside their team. And I have to think that it was really effective in that context. But just like GM, you can't document that process and move it somewhere else and expect it to work. And Agile, you know, the Agile Industrial Complex, to steal Martin Fowler's uh, term, um, thinks that you can, right? There's this whole huge industry, huge amounts of money saying, well, here's this thing that's been documented because it worked elsewhere. And if we move, a, move it over to your place of work, it'll work perfectly. And it never does. And the, that's, I think, probably the biggest impediment 
to getting agile into an organization is people thinking it's this canned thing and we can bring in an army of trainers and they'll they'll teach us what the book means and then we'll do it by the book and we'll be successful and it never is of course so yeah isn't that what humans are looking for we're looking for something that is prescriptive there we're looking for the guardrails the rules that we can follow to know that we'll be successful and because I've, I've worked with a number of different organizations that have gone through some kind of agile transformation they brought in an expert with a certification and you know, they they laid down the rules that you must follow and you can be successful if you do that and now you know an organization that was classical project management is now an agile organization and project managers became product owners and and now we have delivery managers and and changed hats. yeah it's it's around for a hat but i don't have one but it changed hats yes yeah doesn't work so so what what then is because we can't just come in and throw the baby out with the bathwater and start over so how do we make sure that we can be successful how do we give folks those guardrails that they crave well i don't putting it in terms of guardrails is kind of interesting because I don't think of it that way, right? Because the guardrails are what's in the way, right? Those are the impediments, right? The way the way you become agile is by removing all of the impediments to agile, right? And what's left is agile. And the more often than not, it's the removal of impediments. It's the, it's, the impediments are the guardrails, in other words. So, you know, the transition process is always, it's a tough, it's a tough problem because agile is a, radically different way of doing things from the way that these big IT focused corporations run. And pretty much nothing that they do now is going to work. At least it's not going to be agile in the literal sense of the word, right? Flexible and nimble and able to easily change direction, that kind of thing. And the, the, um, you, you look at, um, how do you make the change? And a lot of, there's a lot of coaches in the agile world that are very fearful given that question. And they say, oh, we can't do anything big. We'll change this little thing here and we'll change this. We'll get the teams to use TDD and, you know, do this, this little thing and that little thing. And I've never seen that really succeed is that it works up to a point. Um, people on the team's lives are made better, which is not a bad thing. I'm, a, I'm all in favor of making people's lives better. It's if you're doing TDD and stuff, you're, you're, you don't spend all this time hunting down awful bugs and, you know, is that your life is better, but it's in terms of adding, adding, Agility to the organization, it doesn't do anything. There's nothing useful, right? Agile has got nothing to do with TDD. It's got to do with agility, being able to accommodate changes when they come along with, with, the, with enthusiasm. And so you have these teams doing their little things, but meanwhile, they've got like a six-month roadmap and a years-long backlog, and just <laughs> which they are forced to go through in order and, you know, just all this craziness. And... I, I think that ultimately is a kind of failed approach to say we're going to do it a little bit at a time and we're not going to try and shake up anything. So the the bigger organizations that I've seen that have succeeded in moving in an agile direction, uh, they pretty much got torn apart and put back together again. Um, you know, and the the I don't really see any way around that. I, I I'm looking at a lot of big corporations. I'm just decided or just realized, not just, but anyway. I don't think they can be agile. You look at a big corporation and it's just, it's just never going to do that. It's not going to be agile in the literal sense of the word. When I say agile, I mean, I mean with the lower case. Eh? And it's because everything is too ingrained. And 
the it's a very very rare large organization that will allow itself to take what they see as risk, right? They see it as risky. I see it as the opposite because I know that agile works really well. So it seems to me that the risky thing is to keep doing what you're doing. But a lot of people who run these big corporations don't see it that way. And there's also there's a lot of I wouldn't say guardrails, but a lot of kind of Kahneman, slow thinking, fast thinking going on here. Um, a lot of people have this kind of gut feeling about the way businesses are supposed to work, right? That's the that's fast thinking in the Kahneman sense. And um, they go with that. And anything else just seems crazy to them, literally. You know, they say in the real world, we can't possibly do that. Businesses don't work that way. And um, in order to accept Agile, you've got to, it requires some slow thinking. It requires sitting down and really analyzing what you're doing and making sense out of it. And you're, you know, understanding where the problems are and how you could fix them and that kind of stuff. And a lot of companies just don't want to do that. The people who are running them just don't want to do that. They have very fixed ideas about how things are supposed to work and they won't accept anything that doesn't fit into that mold. And, you know, the, if you look at the fake agile processes that are successful, look at SAFE, right? SAFE succeeds because it isn't really agile. It's a perfectly good process. It's just not an agile one, but it's called agile. So it makes those guys feel, feel comfortable, right? Is that here's something that I can, that I can get behind. I, I'm used to it. I can still have my PMO. I can I can still have my managers making decisions. I can still have what amounts to a waterfall. And we'll we'll tweak it here and there, but you know, the bureaucracy is still in place and the 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 main corporate structure is still in place and you still have to get permission to do things and you know, and it it's it's very comfortable for those sorts of people and that's what they that's what they will proceed with and scrum falls into the same category though to a lesser extent for a small organization scrum is treated the same way the big organizations treat safe because they, they they won't they don't actually do scrum right they take scrum and they modify it they turn it into something else that looks more familiar to them and of course that doesn't work so they blame agile when it fails but the just like safe is not going to work either so they're going to blame agile when that fails as well but the the it it, it fits into their preconceptions about how businesses work yeah and that that's why i use the the term guardrails and and prescriptive models like scrum because it 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 gives the adopter the the level of comfort that they that they are looking for if we follow these step if we follow these steps we can be successful because somebody told somebody told me so right yeah but if they did their due diligence how many companies that followed those steps were successful right yeah and and, and how do you define success is the other problem too yeah and and preparing for having you on uh we were watching the the no estimates talk that you have on youtube as well as the death of agile and and listening to your uh de description of being successful often takes tearing apart an organization and rebuilding it and realizing that you're inverting the structure, you're you're making the the leaders now servant leaders and supporting the team rather than top down uh, giving marching orders and that type of thing. That's a very scary transition. Oh yeah, it's very scary. And the the now you don't have to tear the organization apart, right? As one of the things that I've seen be successful several times is to form a sub organization, if you will. Right, a skunk works. And provided that that separate smaller thing inside the bigger thing is given full autonomy. 
right, is that nobody is trying to tell them what to do. Nobody is controlling their budget. They're just they're, they're given a strategic directive and a big chunk of money. And they say and, and then, you know, have at it um, when something like that is successful, then I don't think that the organization can then learn from. I don't think that the I don't believe in the myth that those people will then come back and turn the rest of us into into this great agile thing. But I think that that will be a successful organization within an organization, which will then prompt the bigger organization to create another one of those. And eventually, if you create enough of them, you can just get rid of the original, right? This is kind of the strangler pattern applied to corporations, right? Is the, <laughs> we'll make a separate agile organization and it's really successful. And then we'll make another one and we'll make another one. And then we'll just, the, the big parent company can then just kind of fade away is that we don't really need it anymore. And that can work. But, um, and that's not disruptive of the main organization because the main organization is continuing to do what it does without anybody bothering but um, it's uh, it's if you really want the whole organization to change, though, it's a big, disruptive, huge thing, which, again, can't happen. But it's always hard. So people people bring up um, ANC Bank as an example of both a success and a failure at that. Right. Is that they they tried a few times and failed completely um, doing that incremental thing. And then they decided to do a big bank transition. And that worked pretty well. But they. It's been it's been a hard road for them. They're still trying to kind of really make it work now. It's not as if it was instantly successful. So it, it can be a hard problem. All the all the companies that I've worked for that have tried the the agile thing, um, it feels like they're only ever asking how how can yeah. we agile. Yeah, they're never asking why should we agile. What do we want from agile? Um, how is that going to help the company? It's, it's always just, how can we agile? We've been told agile good. How can agile? Yeah, but it's the, even worse than that is, is thinking of agile as a thing you can how, right? It's the, right? We think it's a, it's a process. If we only learn this process, everything will be perfect. And really, you have to learn a new point of view. And they don't look, they don't think about that. You know, think, you know, this is not, you can't bring in this army of trainers and, and, and learn how to do it because there is no it. And the, the, it's a hard concept for many people to grasp that, you know, it's, it's kind of like when you say to an architect, how should we, is this a good way to do this? And the architect's answer is always, well, it depends. And <laughs> that applies here too, right? <laughs> and yeah, we've got this new application. We need you to create the uh, the initial architecture and and hand it off so that we can implement. Yeah, right. <laughs> but what's the app supposed to do? What does the what do the requirements look like? Well, and more to the point, what do, what do your customers need? Yeah, you know, and uh, that's a tough one. If in a lot of organizations, that might be the biggest obstacle is just talking to the customers, actually figuring out what they need. And you see that even within pseudo agile organizations, I, 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 I have a problem with Basecamp. Actually, I have a problem with DH, DHH, but I have I have a problem with Basecamp in general and their whole their whole um, um, shape up thing. Because if you look at it, it's the customer is not really in there. You know, <laughs> it's a very waterfally kind of thing. Is that I think shape up would be great for an organization that is an existing waterfall organization and wants to move a little bit in kind of an agile direction because the waterfall is still there. Big upfront design process, 
Um, big long cycles is that the you know the book talks about how we're doing things in an agile way with a six week design cycle followed by a six week implementation cycle. So it's three months. We're talking about three month long iterations. <laughs> you know and. The customer is kind of not involved, except maybe somebody might want to talk to them, but it's really a bunch of internal product people coming up with, with pitches, right? <laughs> coming up with the design and then pitching it to other people inside the organization and then deciding to build it based on the pitch. And where are the customers? <laughs> you know, where are the customers? And I, I and that might might have worked inside Basecamp, which is an existing established product, but you look at Hay. And Hay was a complete, utter disaster. It was like they built something that nobody wanted. And they were doing it using this base camp technique, this base camp strategy, which was kind of agile-ish, but wasn't really agile. And it, it, this is what happens, right? And if, But if you talk to DHH, he will swear up and down that what they're doing is an agile process. And um, I don't I don't buy it. I'm sorry. And the, the you know, and it kind of gets back to what you were saying, Clayton, is that the the... If somebody wants a how, well, that's a how, right? <laughs> you could do it like, you know, a set of instructions is right there in the book, just follow the instructions, but it's not, it doesn't get you to a very agile place when you do that. And the, the I, I, I don't know, I, 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 I don't want to be op too, too pessimistic here because I think it is possible to be agile. I think it's way easier for a small company to be agile than it is for a large one to be agile. I think that Darwin will rule eventually. Right, is that the companies that won't do a natural selection will take over and they'll fade away. But from the perspective of those, those, those companies that are the dodos of the software industry, it would be nice from their perspective if they didn't just fade away as they'd like to succeed. So I don't know how to do that. They have to get scared, I guess. You're not going to make those changes unless you're scared enough. So as long as what you're doing now is profitable, you don't think, well, if we did it this other way, we'd be way more profitable. So they're not scared enough to actually make the real changes they need to make in order to in order to make that transition, I think. Yeah, you, you've got to be self-reflective enough to, like the agility comes from the self-reflection. Yes. Like look, looking at where you are, where you want to be, why you want to be there, and then then coming up with a plan. Yeah. Not just going, well, I read this book and it said that if I do X, Y, and Z, that success. Well, it's not about practices. I get so fed up with all of the talk about sprints and backlogs and backlog grooming and all this garbage. None of that, none of that has anything to do with being agile, right? And the, it's all secondary. Is the, the, the agile is a point of view. And there's a toolkit. And the toolkit is kind of interesting. And if the tools work for you, you could pick a tool out of the toolkit that would be useful. But just treating carpentry as tools, right? <laughs> is the is it's just not it's not the way it works, right? Is that you don't become a master carpenter by going out and buying a bunch of good tools. Um, that said, there isn't a master carpenter on the planet who doesn't buy the best tools he or she can possibly afford. Right? You need the right tools, you need good tools. But simply starting with the tools is not that doesn't work, right? <laughs> is that you need you need to start by learning the the craft by learning the trade. I more more and more I've been thinking of software developers as makers. Um, I think I think the analogy fits pretty well. And the the 
you know, because what we what we're doing is a craft, and you don't learn a craft by learning a tool set, and you don't learn a craft by learning rote ways of doing things, right? The the it just doesn't work that way, and um, so it's a harder problem than people think, and it's not easy, and the corporate guys want it to be easy. And they also want to do it without knowing too much about what they're doing. If you think about the way big corporations work, usually, right, the the people in charge delegate the how to other people, and that goes all the way down the ladder. But so a big corporation, the CEO is not going to learn about Agile, is they're going to say to the PMO, you know, do this Agile thing. But the very fact that a PMO ex- exists is in the way of them actually being Agile as an organization. So the CEO doesn't know enough to know that's the problem. And the PMO is not going to do anything that's going to put itself out of business. So they're just not going to be successful. And the, the, it takes people at the top to really understand what's going on in order to make it work. Yeah. Uh, so like, as I've been hearing you talking, um, I was the, the idea or the, the thought of like uh, back in the early, was it like, or late 1800s, we really started seeing the industrial revolution and this idea of repeatable steps really taking over this, the notion of handcraftedness, right? And that we didn't necessarily get higher quality of goods, but what was able to be produced was higher amounts of goods, right? Um, There was, there were some things that were, that introduced extra quality, but the scalability, the ability to scale up. And, and I think this is the problem is when we look at agile, agile as a point of view, well, an individual has a point of view. How do you scale an individual? You, you, you have to, it's a, it's a very difficult, long, tedious process. We, 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 we had for passing down craftsman ideas and craftsman's point of view down to entrepreneur or, um, 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 you know, f- f- tradesmen yeah. and and, yeah, yeah. and and whatnot, uh, and it takes a lot of energy and effort to take and reproduce a ma- master craftsman. Whereas a process, there's a there's a lure there to say, well, if we could just do this over again, and we're good. That's a great point, but I, I take it even a step further though, right? Is that the process that you're describing of taking crafts, what crafts people did, and industrializing it so that you could have repeatable, make large quantities of repeatable results. Well, software is always a one-off, right? We, we don't need that whole manufacturing thing, right? We don't do that. And the, the too much of what goes wrong is people who imagine that the thinking behind a factory and an assembly line applies to software development. And it doesn't, right? We we are craftspeople. That's why, again, again, I like this maker thing. And to argue that you can take the metrics and the thinking and the management practices that go into making a factory work <laughs> and apply that to craftspeople, no. <laughs> it's just, you know, it's not going to work. We're doing something different. We are not producing 100,000 identical widgets. We're producing one really good one. One other problem that I think is is not often addressed or, or not addressed in such a way that we have a good handle on how to manage is in an agile transformation or, or in trying to change how a business works that has any amount of success behind it. They've they've been able to sell a product at some point in their history. They've been able to employ 
different individuals that they have an amount of success in the way that they have done business. And now we're asking them to try something different, try something new. They had repeatability. They had something that they could estimate and know what they can deliver in what amount of time. And now we're trying to say, well, we're going to do this Fibonacci planning sequence on our user stories and we're going to. Oh, not that. Oh, God, not that. (laughs) (laughs) That's not going to work any better. (laughs) Some level of estimate, some level of timeline to know when we're going to start shipping things and we're going to focus on only the most um, important pieces that we can deliver quickly and, and, and repetitively and in such a way that we can deliver value. But they're still going to want to know what their timeline looks like. They're going, maybe going to want to put together their Gantt chart so they can have some level of uh, comfort to know that they are focusing on the right things and delivering the right things. But those, those things won't tell them that they're focusing on the right things and delivering the right things. That's the problem. Right? The problem is they build something that nobody wants. We get back to the hay problem, right? Is they built something that nobody wanted. And the, the, um, that's the case with most companies is what they build is things that people don't want. And the things that they build are, think of the, the time and effort that goes into building things that nobody wants. You know, and I look, I've, I've been working, um, when I'm doing remote classes lately, I've been using this great tool called spatial chat. And I, I don't know if you know it or not, but it's, um, it was designed for open conferences, open space conferences. And um, if you ever do classes, it's a great resource. The basic idea is you have a virtual room and you have these little circles which have videos, not not avatars, but actual videos in them. And you can move them around. And when two circles are close to each other, you can hear each other. And the further apart you are, the quieter it gets. So if you're at opposite sides of the virtual room, you can't hear, hear each other at all. So if you're doing a class, you can all gather together and listen to the instructor. And then when you break out into breakout sessions, you just all go to your four corners and you become a breakout session. And you can, me as an instructor, I can walk back and forth between the, between the corners in order to work with the groups. It's great. It's really a wonderful system. Interestingly though, here they have this wonderful system and they've decided they needed to expand. So they've added all these features and I can't imagine what anybody would want them for. You know, they have a, they have a feature with no video, right? It's just audio. And I'm going, well, okay, <laughs> but why would we do that? Right. We could just have a Skype call as we don't, we don't, we don't need to, we don't need your system to do audio. And then they have a stage and in the stage, the person's talking is like a big blown up thing, but you can't see any of the people in the audience. And as a presenter, that's like the worst possible situation. I want to see who I'm talking to. So the, but the core thing, I can do all of those, right? The core thing is great. But instead of making the core thing better, which they could do, they're spending a huge amount of effort and money and time building these things that somebody somewhere thinks might be useful in some context, I guess, but I can't imagine what they're good for. And I think how much more successful they would be if they would spend that time building stuff that would actually make the core idea better rather than these separate things on the side. And the companies that are working the way you're describing, they'll never, they'll do the same thing, right? Is that they'll, they'll keep, they'll work on stuff based on political, for political reasons, for, you know, some of the CEO says, Eureka, I've got this great idea, drop everything you're doing and work on this. I've seen that too many times. And, you know, the customers will love this. That's the expression I hear. The customers will love this. They never do, but, <laughs> but whoever came up with the idea, that's what they say. Right. And, um, 
it just doesn't work. So I, I think getting back to what you were originally saying, the problem is, is that those things that make them feel comfortable are not working. And often they know that. And the, the you know, it, it, one of the things I say to people that are determined to take Agile and move it back into something that's familiar is that if the things that are familiar work so well, then why are you looking at anything else? Right? And truth to tell, if what they're doing now is working really well, why? I don't see that they need to do this Agile thing. Right? No advantage of no advantage, particularly. Right? But if the, if the business is having problems because you're not responding quickly enough to your customers, Right. And you see that in the business. You see it in the bottom line. You're not you're not acquiring customers as fast as you'd like to. You're losing them. Maybe um, your competitor is is um, pulling them away because they're implementing things that your customers really like and you're not doing them. Right. That's why you want to be agile. It's got nothing. It has nothing to do with being agile for the sake of agile it has to do with the business. And the the. Well, maybe this is just because I was a CTO a couple of times, even for a small company. But if you really want to talk agile to bosses, you have to speak their language. And you've got to talk about the bottom line and you've got to talk about risk reduction and you've got to talk about, about bringing in new customers and you've got to talk about things that mean, mean something to a business person. And those things should mean something to us too, right? If the business fails, we don't get paid, right? <laughs> but it's surprising how few people in the development side seem to understand how businesses work or what's important. Yeah, it's actually interesting because we often, or at least I hear plenty of developers complaining about uh, non-developers not taking the time to understand us and understanding what we need. But how often do we actually take the time to understand that that other sphere? Yeah, you know, and often, often the other side of that too is that often the things that are important to us are actually unimportant to the business. You know, is that some technical thing, we've got to, we've got to like fix the database. Right. And business guys going, well, why? How, how is that going to improve the bottom line? How is that going to bring in customers? How is that going to do anything that's going to make the business more successful? And often tech people do not have a good answer to that question. But they, which doesn't stop them from wanting to, to do it. Right. So this tension happens as they get mad at the business people say, well, we want to fix the database and they won't let us. And the business people are kind of they don't understand what the problem is. Right. And maybe the business, often the database doesn't need fixing, really. Right. It's just that some dev just doesn't, it's not pretty enough. Right. They just, the, 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 the aesthetics of it don't please them. But, um, or, or maybe it does need fixing, but there's not necessarily customer value in it. Like, because what we yeah, have is good the, enough or something. Well, I think it's a reasonable argument to say that in the long term, long term being, say, six months. Um, everybody will benefit if it's easier to make changes to the code. And the database in its current state is an obstacle to that. Every time we need to make a change that ought to take five hours or take an hour, it takes 10 times that long because we're messing around with this hor horror of a database. And that if we spend some time fixing it, then we could get stuff into our customers' hands faster. Now, that's an, uh, that's an argument that the business people will understand. But it's got to be true. Right. If you if if a bunch of developers then spend three months fixing fixing the database, and it doesn't get software into the developers' hands faster or into the into the customers' hands faster, then the engineering side will have lost a hundred percent of its credibility with the with the business side. So it's got to actually be true. But sometimes that's that is true. Sometimes it isn't. Right. It depends on depends on the developers in question, and how how horrific the database is. But the the um, 
the it's a legitimate argument. Now you can't confuse that with value though, right? A lot of times I see a backlog that is full of nothing but those kinds of tasks, things that the the developers want to do. And if you're not getting value into your customers' hands, the business will fail. I can pretty much guarantee that. So if the devs take over and you're not doing anything except technical work that the devs really want to do, the business will just fail. So I you have to keep those two activities separate, I think. I, I think of them as, as um, overhead activities and value-add activities, right? And the overhead is in one pile and the value-add the value is another. And one of the things that I where I really differ strongly with Scrum is the idea of putting both of those things together into a single backlog. I, I don't like that. And the reason is that you get into arguments about what's valuable then. As people say, well, this is valuable. This is valuable to me. And it should be valuable to the customer because it's valuable to me. <laughs> and I know it doesn't work that way. So I'd, I would rather have a backlog that has product stuff in it where your customers look at it and they'd say, yeah, I really want that. And then a separate thing, which has the overhead tasks in it, like fixing the database, I'd usually just stick them on a Kanban board. And then I can say, I'm going to devote one day a week to the Kanban board and four days a week to the value add stuff. And that way things stay balanced is you don't, things don't, don't, you know, you, you don't get too much on one side or the other. You get control that way. And, um, but a lot of companies don't separate overhead from value is they just kind of lump them all together into work. And that makes it very hard to make intelligent decisions about what to do at any given moment, what's important enough to justify our time. And the, the you know, there we are. So it's a, a different way of thinking again, though. So, so what else? What, what have we not talked about? Or what do you wish people would focus more of their effort and energy on thinking about to improve their daily lives for, for themselves, for their business, for their customers? Well, they're all related, you know, is that it, when it comes to, um, <laughs> that's such a huge question. <laughs> it's, it's, it's hard to start, right? Is the, 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 lately I've come, I have this list of heuristics on my website. If you come across it, it's a, it's a, um, the short URL is holub.com slash H E U. And it is my, my list of, 27 things you could do to move into an agile space. And it's not earth shattering. There's nothing in it that's earth shattering. Most of them are just sort of starting out with the agile manifesto. How do you translate that into something that makes sense to people? Because clearly they don't understand it as it stands. And, um, you know, that's, I, I wish that people would focus on the things that are in there. And what's in there are things like communicating well, um, working at a sustainable pace where you're not exhausted all the time, uh, putting the, the needs of the customer first. Um, quality is not um, arguable, really. I, I'm, trying, I'm just doing this off the top of my head. So, I, I, you know, you can, you can look up the list and read it. But none of the things in there are the things that people often think about when they start moving in an agile direction. And uh, you look at the things that people do think about, um, if it's a company that's not agile now, the first thing they're going to go to is metrics. They're going to be saying, I need to be able to measure our success. And I don't know how to do that. Um, I'm on Deming's side here. As Deming said, 3% of the things that matter can be, can be measured. And I kind of agree with that. And the, the, if you just start off with things like get the work under control, um, make people's lives better, 
by you know establishing a sustainable pace, create an environment of psychological safety. Um, the 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 sort of underpinnings that you have to have in place for any kind of agility to be possible. That's a huge amount of work. Um, you don't need any measurements for it. You just need to understand what the problems are and start putting solutions in place. And if you don't do that, you're never going to be successful at any kind of agile process. And if you do do that, you will be successful even if there isn't an agile process in sight. So those are the things that we have to focus on, I think. You know, especially, you know, work in progress, lowering work in progress, um, psychological safety, uh, uh, focus on communication, on effective communication, um, build, building an effective culture, right? All, all of these are the things that are, I think, paramount, the most important things to be working on and not backlog grooming and sprints and all that other junk. I don't, I don't need any of that. So anyway, there's my short answer, long answer. So, sorry. <laughs> No, that's perfect. Uh, do you have any resources that uh, you might be able to point our listener, listeners to to help them, you know, grow in the in some of those areas? Uh, there's a lot of them. The the well, there's my list. We could start with my heuristics, right? Is that that's a that's a good place to start because it kind of puts it all into a condensed format. At least it tells you things that are important to look at. And um, but, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of books. I have a read long reading list on my website also. It's polib.com slash reading. That's kind of a general agile slash lean reading list. And there's, there's it's a mix of technical books and non-technical books. You know, probably the central ones are um, Dan Pink's Drive and Amy Edmondson's uh, The Fearless Organization. She talks about psychological safety and um, Coin's uh, Culture Code. These are the, again, I'm just doing this off the top of my head, but these are the books that kind of get you thinking in the right directions, thinking about the right things and sort of moving in the right direction. And then underlying that are things like Kahneman, of course, but Kahneman is kind of a heavy read. I don't know that I would recommend that as light reading. You know, the other thing that's really critical that people don't think about nearly enough is systems think. And the, the, the problem with, um, with systems is that the, the system as a whole is a different thing than the individual pieces and tweaking one piece is not going to, is not going to affect things, right? If you think of a car as a system that, that is designed to move somebody from point A to point B, well, you can't take the engine out of the car and sit on it and achieve the goal of the system, right? <laughs> you're not going to, you're not going to move anywhere sitting on the engine. It might be, it might be nice and warm, but you're not going to move anywhere. <laughs> So um, the uh, when people do agile things too much, they're not thinking about the system. They're thinking about the engines. Or they're thinking about the engineering department as something that's separate from everything else, when in fact it's not. And so there's a bunch of good books on systems thinking, right? Senge uh, comes to mind immediately, Peter Senge. Um, Donella Meadows' book is a spectacularly good book on systems thinking. Uh, Weinberg wrote on systems thinking. But I think that's the other thing that I'd recommend in terms of resources to get started, is that I, I would... I would um, Start by thinking, by learning to think in terms of systems. I think that makes more, it's more important than anything. And I think that's particularly true at like the sea level. Is that there are, there are too few people up at that level that are, that are thinking of their organization as a single system, as an organism. 
and they they don't they think of the individual pieces as being way more separate than they actually are when in fact they interact and interrelate in very complex ways and um if you don't if you don't um understand that and build your thinking around that you're ultimately going to fail so that's the other piece of of advice i'd give you so the the systems thinking part is uh kind of like what you might suggest for a company for my my kind of final question but um, what advice or what what have you found helpful in your career that you might share with those just getting started or those maybe looking to level up their own careers? The, well, I had kind of a non-standard career. So I don't know. Is that I, you know, I, I got kind of fed up with the whole working for somebody else thing pretty early and went off on my own. So my advice is not necessarily advice that you, I would give to somebody who wants to continue to work for a company rather than working for themselves. In other words, the, adv- the kind of advice that I'd give is to is is we could start off with courage, right? Uh, if you look at all of the various agile sets of values, courage is the one that's on all of them. And the the often people don't change or don't get the changes that they need in place because they're afraid and. Um, it, I, I don't think that's a good thing. And as a consultant, I can get away with not being afraid, right? If you fire me, I don't care. So I'll find another job. That's my life is to work for work somewhere for a while. And that job ends and I find another one. It doesn't bother me. But if you get, if you, if you like having a, something that you see as a permanent regular job, there's a lot of um, downside to speaking up. And psychological safety is essential. Psychological safety being an environment where it's okay to speak up. It's okay to have disagreements. It's okay to argue even. And there's no downside to that. Um, Most of us do not work in safe environments. And there's a lot of danger associated with that. And ultimately, no real improvement can happen unless you deal with that. So the certainly trying to get a safety in place should be a good first step there. But in terms of personal advice, you just, I don't know, you've got to learn to speak up and it's no matter how scary it is. And it's pretty scary sometimes. And I, you know, on the, on the plus side, we're in, we're in an economy right now that's very much working in our favor is the, 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 you know, the programmers are kind of running things. People are desperate to find new, new programmers. So, um, we have a little bit of clout that we sometimes don't have. So that's, that's worth leveraging that now that we're in a position where we can do it. Um, the other thing is I think you need to learn as much as you possibly can about your profession is that all too often I see people that don't, they're not widely read. Uh, they don't even read code. Used to be that people would read code. Um, I worked for years for Dr. Dobbs journal. I don't know if anybody remembers it, but it was a, you know, it was a magazine full of code. It was just, one one program after another with articles describing how how the code worked and that's what we did for recreation as <laughs> we sat around and read magazines about code we stared at code and looked at how it worked and uh, more and more i'm not seeing that kind of thing happening and that's kind of disturbing to me um we need to we need to work on our our skills we're craftspeople we need to work on our skills and that involves reading about coding it also involves reading about you know, all this other stuff, how businesses work and that kind of stuff that that uh, ultimately impacts our lives. And the more we know about it, the better off we're going to be, the more effective we'll be. And more importantly, the more we know about it, 
eventually we get perceived as experts and people will pay attention to us, which um, is often the biggest problem that people have, right? I, I don't know as a, how many times as a consultant I've gone into some organization and I'm not saying a single thing that the people inside the organization have not been saying for months. But I'm like the expensive guy with a briefcase who gets off an airplane or nowadays who logs into Zoom. And for some reason, people pay attention to me but they really should be paying attention to the people that are working for them. But they haven't, the people who are doing the actual work for the company haven't built up the level of trust that they need to build up in order to be taken seriously. And you do that by being able to learn the vocabulary of the people that you have to influence. And all too often, we don't know that. We don't know how to do that. So, but that's not, it's not something, it's not a force of nature as you can learn it. It's not, not that, that hard. Awesome. Uh, where can our listeners go to follow you and keep up with what you're what you're working on? Um, probably the right now, Twitter is probably the best way to get hold of me on a on an you know ongoing basis. I'm at, I'm at Alan Holub on Twitter, and um, so that would that would be where I'd start. I have a mailing list, um, holub.com/slash/subscribe. I do a bunch of classes, and lately I've been doing public classes, remote public classes that have been going pretty well. So. If you sign up for my mailing list, you'll get notified when I do a when I do a public class. Um, I used to do a lot of conference speaking, and will again once conferences are going again. It's the it's hard. Is that I I was I was going to do a conference in Denmark last week, and I didn't do it, much to my distress because I just couldn't deal with the COVID situation. Things were getting way worse there, and they were in denial at the time. I'm sorry if there are any Danes listening to this, but it seemed to me from the outside that you were in denial because cases were going way, way, way up and people were not wearing masks and that kind of thing. So I didn't go. And I'm hoping that will change eventually. You know, let's all hope for the best. Um, you know, eventually everybody will either get vaccinated or sick and that will kind of solve the problem. But the, the, <laughs> the, um, but anyway, so now it's more remote kinds of things than than anything else, but Twitter is probably the best way to do it on a day-to-day basis. Um, I also moderate, there's a big uh, agile and lean uh, software development group on LinkedIn that I moderate. And that that's another, another place to have to make contact. All right, Alan, thanks so much. Really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. This has been great. You're welcome. It's been my pleasure. That was Alan Holub. Alan is an internationally recognized software architect and consultant slash trainer focusing on organizational agility. He helps people build software better and build better software. He's available as a consultant to help your company with its agility. If you like this episode, please like, rate, and review on iTunes. Find show notes, blog posts, and more at sixfiguredev.com. And catch us live each week on Twitch. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at sixfiguredev. This has been another episode of the Six Figure Developer Podcast, helping others reach their potential. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. 